Okay, guys, I thought it was time to do a bonus episode sharing information on the quadruple homicide that happened at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. This case is hitting super close to home. If you're a longtime listener, you know I am from Idaho. It's the typical thing to hear the same statements in true crime coverage, like this stuff doesn't happen here, or this is a low crime rate area, or no one locks their door around here. I get it. It's like cliche to say, right? But it's true here. The last homicide in Moscow was back in 2015, seven years ago. It does feel safe here in Idaho. And I mean, I lock my home down diligently, but you all know I'm deeply in this world, so I'm very aware of the evils all around us. But in general, the communities in Idaho feel close-knit. It's a small-town vibe. Sometimes it feels like a safe little bubble. Of course, murder happens everywhere, and the brutality of the murders perpetrated on four college students has rocked not only the community in Moscow, but the entire state of Idaho, as well as the surrounding states and the nation. On Monday, November 14th, I was covering a shift at a barber shop for one of my old bosses. I don't work there regularly anymore. She was just on vacation, so I come in to help out, and one of my friends was cutting an older man's hair, and he's like, so have you guys heard about the murder at the university in Moscow? We hadn't heard, so he goes on to tell us that his son is the student body president at the university, and that his son told him there was a murder of four college students who were all stabbed. I was floored. Like, how could this happen? Four students stabbed? So, of course, I hop on my phone and start looking it up. I read about five articles, but this was before the cause of death was ever released. Nothing stated that the victims were stabbed. It was only said that the four students were found dead in their off-campus house near the University of Idaho. So initially, I think this man had to have been wrong about them being stabbed. I'm thinking he just heard a rumor or he just assumed this is how they died. It made absolutely zero sense to me that four people could be stabbed and murdered by one perpetrator. But I would later find out that this man at the barbershop was not wrong. His son, being connected to the university, must have had this information before it was in the media. And when that information was confirmed, I came back to the same confusion. How and why did this happen? So I'm sharing with you today in hopes that maybe one of you listening will have a tip the investigation needs. And even if you don't know it, the smallest thing could be huge for the investigation. Some people may have seen something that they wouldn't have realized was connected to a crime. And being from Idaho, we have a lot of listeners here. The factual information I am sharing will be coming straight from the investigators. I will also be sharing thoughts the families have, because I do believe the families deserve a voice in these cases, but I also understand keeping the integrity of an investigation and that the police do not want rumors spread. So I'm going to toe that line very carefully between investigation facts and family thoughts and theories. I will also share some of the speculation that has gone around and what the police statements have been on each event. I want the information I share to only be helpful to this investigation and not harmful. With that, are you ready for today's case?
November 12th, 2022, five girls are getting ready in their home on 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho. This is Zanna Kernado, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Goncalves, Bethany, and Dylan. The five girls are roommates, and I'm only going to share the first names of the two that survived. So is Dylan a girl? Dylan's a girl, yes. Bethany and Dylan are two other roommates that Zanna, Madison, and Kaylee lived with. And then I'm just not going to share Bethany and Dylan's last names because they're alive. I mean, they're out there on the internet, but, yeah. you know. I heard that there was a sixth person on the lease. Yes, but um, I didn't get the name of that because police said that there was one other person, but they moved out before the school year started. So that person wasn't living there. There could, like, there could be six people living in this home. Like, that's what it allowed for. There's six rooms, but... Only five are living there at the time. So all of the girls are going out that night. It's a Saturday in their college town. So, of course, it's time for some fun. Madison's boyfriend of about two years, Jake Schreiger, says later at a celebration of life ceremony that Maddie loved the process of getting ready, surrounded by all of her friends. He remembers often sitting on the bed, watching the girls laughing together while they got done up, and Maddie was always helping everyone with their makeup. So this is probably similar to how the five roommates got ready that Saturday. At some point, all five of them go outside for a quick photo op. Some of these photos include Zanna's boyfriend, Ethan Chapin. He didn't live at the home, but the couple was often together. I'm not sure if he had been there most of the day or if he met up with them that afternoon. But on November 12th, Kaylee posts the photos on Instagram with the caption, One lucky girl to be surrounded by these people every day. By that evening, they have all gone their separate ways. According to the police timeline, Kaylee and Madison go together to the Corner Club. This is a bar at 202 North Main Street in downtown Moscow. The girls are here from about 10 p.m. on November 12th till about 1.30 a.m. on November 13th. And by 1.40 a.m., they have stopped to order food at the Grub Truck on 318 South Main Street. There is surveillance of the girls here, but we will dive into that later in the episode. The police report that from here, Kaylee and Madison used a private party for a ride to their home on King Road. Now, I don't know if private party means they just got a ride from someone they knew or if it means someone who is like side hustling to give rides gave them a ride. Like something similar to Uber or Lyft, except Uber and Lyft aren't in Moscow. So that's why it could make sense to me because once when Jacob was at a bar, he like someone gave him a business card and it was just a personal person who like would drive people home at the end of the night if they needed it okay so when they say private party I don't know if they just called someone they knew or if they called this like private person who offered rides on like the weekends okay and the Moscow police have said that they do not believe the person who drove them home is connected to the crime but police report that Kaylee and Madison make it back to their house at 1 45 a.m. Now, in an interview with the media, Olivia Goncalves, Kaylee's older sister, says that she has been slightly frustrated with the timeline going around because according to her, Kaylee and Madison actually got home at 1.56 a.m., so 11 minutes later. She states that it may not seem like a huge deal, but that she believes it's significant when asking people to assess their video surveillance in the area. How do they know what time they got home? They don't really say how they know. I've heard rumors of there being camera footage. Cameras. From around. Videos Mm -hmm. from neighbors. Yeah. 
but I wonder why the sister thinks it's different. Yeah, she said it's confirmed that Madison and Kaylee got home at 156. So I'm not sure if they're just saying 145 as like a general timeline. She just wanted to point it out in the media so that when people are looking at surveillance video, but I'm not really sure. Maybe it's the text messages. You know, Kaylee's family has made mention to like seeing the text messages Kaylee, you know, was exchanging that night and whatnot. So I'm not sure how she knows, but that's what she says. She says they're home at 1.56 a.m., which I guess would make sense because the police say that Zana and Ethan, as well as Kaylee and Madison, all get home, even though they're in different areas, at 1.45. So I feel like that's just kind of, they're just kind of generalizing like it their to guesstimate. 1.45, yeah. Basically, by at least 2 a.m., we know Kaylee and Madison are home at 1122 King Road. So what were the other roommates doing? Well, police have confirmed that it's believed Bethany and Dylan both went out that night as well. They went out separately, and they were determined to have been home by 1 a.m. and had gone to sleep in their rooms on the first floor of the home. So by the time Maddie and Kaylee get home, it's believed Dylan and Bethany are already asleep downstairs. Zana and Ethan had gone together to the Sigma Chi home, and this house is very close to the 1122 King Road home that Zana lives in. Like, you can literally see the Sigma Chi house from the front, like, parking lot of the home. It's just, like, down the hill. Yeah. It's located on the University of Idaho campus at 735 Nez Pierce Drive, and the couple is seen here around 9 or 10 p.m. on November 12th. And then by 1.45 a.m. on November 13th, police report that Ethan and Zana had returned to Zana's home. So by 2 a.m. on November 13th, all the roommates have arrived home. Oh, I was going to say, I watched a Dr. Phil today. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Phil. I watched Dr. <laughs> Phil today. A Dr. Phil episode. That was on the, the Idaho murders, but I just caught the like last little part of it. Uh-huh. But I thought it was interesting. One of the um, people that he had on there said that, Ethan had had some words with somebody in the frat house Mm -hmm. um, and that Zana actually like had to pull him away. There was like an argument. It kind of sounded like an argument. And you said that it was like a girl that was there at the frat house that saw it. Right. But she's remaining anonymous. Yeah. This. Well, I don't know if it was a girl or a guy, but they wanted to remain anonymous. Okay. Yeah. That's so interesting and good to add to the episode because. I obviously did not watch the Dr. Phil before I wrote this since it was today. Yeah. But so that was one thing that I learned new from from them from that. If it was if it's true. true, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, police like we like we've said, I've said in the intro of this. And as we go through the episode, police have put out very little information and confirmed very little. So everything we say, we'll just say whether they confirmed that or not yet, which they obviously haven't made a statement on that yet because it just came out today. But that's believable to me that there could have been an argument that night at the frat house and maybe it has something to do with it and maybe it doesn't. Right. We know by 2 a.m. on November 13th that all the roommates have arrived home. But between the hours of 2 and 3 a.m., there are 10 calls placed to Kaylee's recent ex-boyfriend, Jack Decor. It seems that Kaylee and Jack had broken up shortly before the murders. The couple had grown up together, both from northern Idaho. It seems that they had started dating as far back as 2019, and Jack also came to Moscow for college. The breakup was amicable, and the family believes it wouldn't have lasted long. Like, they think 
this couple, Kaylee and Jack, would have gotten back together soon. It had just, you know, was a little break. And Kaylee's sister, Olivia, told the press that Kaylee calls her ex, Jack, six times between 2.26 a.m. and 2.44 a.m. Then Madison tries to call him three times herself between 2.44 a.m. and 2.52 a.m. before Kaylee tries one last time at 2.52 a.m., resulting in 10 total phone calls to Jack Decor. And is he answering or is he not? He's not answering. He said he's asleep. Oh. They maybe just came home. They had been drinking and like she just wanted to call him. So they're trying to like get him up. They probably know he's asleep. Maybe, you know, there's like a lot of theories surrounding it. Yeah. But Kaylee's family is standing behind him right now. And the police also say they don't think he's connected. So I would assume the calls are like pretty innocent. I'm sure that he regrets not answering them because then he could have, you know, had an idea of what was going on that night if they were calling like because they were worried or if they were like totally fine at that point. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. So the Moscow Police Department, like I said, has stated that they do not believe Jack Decor has anything to do with the murders, saying, quote, everything that we have taken from those calls we have followed up on. We have cleared and we believe there is no connection there. Kaylee's family, again, is standing by him. Kaylee's mom, Christy Gonkov, says, quote, Jack is just as distraught as we are. Jack is our family. Jack is 1,000%, 2,000% our family, and Jack is with us, and we stand behind him 100%. From everything they say, Kaylee was just trying to get a hold of him. Olivia says it was pretty normal for Kaylee to make a lot of late-night phone calls when she'd get home from being out. But what the phone calls do show us is that Kaylee and Madison are likely still alive when the calls are being placed. Some have speculated that the killer could have called from their phones, but it's unlikely that a killer would be able to, you know, unlock both of their phones and make all these calls to Jack themselves. I believe police feel that the murders took place before. Between 3 and 4 a.m. on November 13th. And these phone calls probably have something to do with that timeline since the last call is placed at 2.52 a.m. And police are assuming they are still alive at that point. And then they believe by 4 Mm a.m. they are killed. And like I said, not sure if they were worried, if they were making calls because they had heard something. But I did see Kaylee's dad, Steve, gone calls do an interview with the media where he said he was able to look at text messages she was exchanging that night and that there was no indication she was worried about anything and it is it has come out which police have not necessarily confirmed this but I have seen a lot of things saying that Kaylee and Madison were in the same bed like they slept in the same bed that night and so they were probably just in bed like they had been drinking they probably just wanted to call yeah. Kaylee's ex and just talk to him. <laughs> they had known him for a long time. Like, they're just probably thinking they're being funny. Again, I have no idea. I'm just speculating, but it seems that that's what the police and the family believe as well. And their room was the very top floor? Yes. They were both, both had rooms on the third level, which on the third level, there are just two rooms. That's all. Two rooms and a bathroom. And those were their two rooms. 
but it seems that Kaylee was in the room with Madison and her dog was possibly in her room, in Kaylee's room, which would make sense because police do say the dog didn't really trace through the crime scene from what they could tell. They said they can't determine exactly where the dog was when the murders took place, but that would make sense to me that her dog is put into her room when she goes out for the night. Since she lives in a house with a bunch of roommates, her dog was likely in the room. And then police say there's no indication that the dog had been into any of the crime scene. Huh. I would assume with how brutal the deaths were that if the dog had been roaming the house, it'd be pretty clear. Yeah. I had heard that the dog was put in like that extra room that the one roommate yeah, okay. wasn't in, but I I could see I that just too. heard that. I don't even know where I heard that from. I know. There's so many rumors and that's why throughout the whole thing I'm really gonna try to come back to always like if the police have confirmed or have not. But according to Kaylee's family, they have alluded to Kaylee and Um, Madison being in the same bed is why I thought that and then maybe the dog was in that extra room maybe the dog was in Kaylee's room yeah but for Bethany and Dylan the roommates on the first floor the night goes by quietly they sleep in that morning after a night out and both of these girls like I said were on the first floor and I'll dive into the whole layout of the house later on when it first happened I, I did wonder like why how come they didn't hear anything yeah and that it that is like what everyone's wondering because like it just seems so weird that you know two people in the house are unharmed and then they didn't hear anything but I did see a media interview with a guy who used to live in that home and his room was on the first floor like I'm assuming there's a lot of turnover in this house for college students that are renting rooms so he said his room was on the first floor and that it is almost like detached-ish from the rest of the house. It's not. It just kind of seems like a completely different area of the home and that when he was in his room, he could never hear anything that was going on upstairs. If the TV was on, nothing. Huh. Plus, then you have to think they were probably also out drinking that night. I was wondering like, yeah, like did they drink a lot? And Yeah, if you come home and you're just, you're out. Sometimes you're going to wake up less when you go to sleep drunk versus if you went to sleep sober. Yeah. But they they are not talking a lot, are they? They're not. and They're just trying to keep out of the public eye. Yeah, they did write letters, which I'll read a couple excerpts from their letters. They have kept really quiet. I'm assuming they have gotten a lot of people coming at them because that's the problem is people like think that they can solve it online themselves. And then instead of just kind of having these theories floating in their mind, like I think we discuss it a lot on like what we think, but we both of us know we don't really know. Yeah. It's just like our thoughts, but I think people take themselves very seriously online. Oh, people are crazy. They are crazy. So the police even just this last weekend came out and said, people in this case are getting harassed they're getting threatened and he was like please stop threatening people like you don't know who did this just leave it alone so I'm sure I know I felt bad for the other Jack at the food truck I know and we'll get into him later too yeah like yeah you'll talk about him but 
like everybody thought it was him and I remember seeing some stuff and I was like well that's sad if it's not and that's the thing is all these people's lives are just getting like ripped apart even random people who have commented on their videos like I from just like looking through theories have come across so many people's pages and you know people just blow them up like this person commented and they're a creep and then everyone's in their comments harassing them you know so it is sad because Mm. at this point we just simply don't know who did it so if I were Bethany or Dylan I probably would also stay out of the public eye because almost no matter what they say oh yeah until the police find who did it I think there will be people who harass them because there will just be people who find it unbelievable that they were asleep on the first that they didn't hear anything yeah yeah so yeah they've definitely kept to themselves um it's close to noon when someone goes to walk upstairs to the second floor but they see something that stops them in their tracks Full details surrounding the 911 call and what was seen have not been released. We just know that at 11.58 a.m., the Moscow Police Department is responding to a call for an unconscious individual. Oh, I did hear something on Dr. Phil, one of the ladies. You did? Yeah. What did they say? They said that there's a theory out there that um, the roommate was likely, one of the roommates were, were likely to go and they saw something and they were running outside. They ran outside and passed out. I have and heard that. And then some of the kids that were there grabbed their phone and then called 911 and said, hey, we have an unconscious person. Oh. Because on Dr. Phil, they were saying there was so much blood. How could you call and say there's an unconscious oh. person when there's so much blood? You, you know they're they're you would say they're murdered or like somebody was stabbed you wouldn't say they were unconscious yes and so they were thinking it was their roommate saw something ran outside passed out someone called said there's an unconscious person here that makes so much sense because I've heard that theory but I thought you know I heard that theory of like she ran outside and passed out but then I thought she like they were still calling for the unconscious person inside yeah but that makes that actually makes sense because the thing about their house is it's it's so close to campus and it's surrounded by apartments so if they did have people come over or like maybe the other roommates called friends over yeah they were thinking that like you know it was morning time and like they well what they theorized is that they were texting like the their roommates up above and like they weren't getting a response back and so then they text their friends and like oh hey mm-hmm. you know have you heard from them come over right then the one roommate went out and they think saw and then went outside and passed out and then there were kids there okay that makes so much sense because the 911 call since there is such little information that comes out about it or is out about it right now. I was going to say that some people have speculated online that the dispatch couldn't declare someone dead. And this is why the call may have come in as an unconscious person. It seems like from what the police said, they made it pretty clear that they were going to the home to assist, aid somebody is what the police said, aid someone who was unconscious. And I have heard that theory that she was outside and passed out. Yeah, I remember when it first came out. It was like, why Why would they say they're unconscious if there's blood me everywhere? And, me and you both. Like, that was one of the things. Yeah, we talked about that. I was like, that call is so weird. 
like I, you know, they hadn't released anything. And I was like, why would they call and say someone's unconscious? Which almost it played into people thinking the roommates were suspicious because they thought the roommates called about an unconscious person. And then the roommates also didn't hear anything. And they're the only two alive. Yeah. But it makes that theory makes so much more sense that someone called to aid her because she ran a I'd run outside if I saw something like that. And B, you would probably pass out because that's terrifying. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, that I'm glad you said that because. Yeah. Like I said, I've heard that, but not like framed that way where she was the one getting aid for being unconscious. So in the Moscow Police Facebook page statement, they have determined that this call is made from one of the surviving roommate's cell phones inside of the residence or at the residence. But they won't release the identity of the person who made that call, saying that it is a part of their ongoing investigation. And I don't know why that's the case. Well, they probably don't want people to harass the person who called, since I don't think it was one of the roommates since they say they won't release the identity, but that it was from their phone. Right. Yeah. They have also stated that multiple people talked with the dispatcher. And on November 20th, the Moscow police released information stating that on the morning the 911 phone call comes in, the surviving roommates did call other friends to the home. Again, that plays into what you were just saying, like other friends Maybe other friends were coming over already. Maybe other friends saw them. Maybe the roommate that didn't pass out called the other friends. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if they, if those roommates knew about, like, knew that they were murdered, they wouldn't be calling friends to come over. Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you would be freaking out. You, you would be freaking out and you would call 911 and you might call your parents. You're not going to call your friends and be like, oh, hey, uh, you should come over because all these murders just happened at my house. Like, that just doesn't make sense. Her being the one passed out and like maybe friends were already coming over or the other roommate called friends over makes a lot of sense. And even like. And I don't think they went in. Like, I don't think those friends went in and saw anything. No. No, no, no. I don't think so either because I think that, uh, like you said, would have been said on the 911 phone call. And if it wasn't one of the roommates who passed out and they did think like there was just someone at the top of the stairs passed out. I mean, you know, again, they're not thinking that this is murder. I did see some people online saying that if it was the roommate who calls and says she saw someone passed out, let's say, you know, it's a person at the top of the stairs, that they could see, like, your brain almost tricking you into, like, not believing that it's a murder. Like, leaving the house because it scared you, but saying, like, you're not going to think this person is murdered. You just think maybe they passed out, and who knows? Who knows? But either way, the roommates don't know murders have taken place when they're calling 911. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Either way, the Moscow police have stated that they do not believe any of the people at the home when the 911 phone call is made have any involvement in the murders. Bethany and Dylan write letters to be read at a recent memorial service for the victims. Dylan writes, quote, My life was greatly impacted to have known these four beautiful people, people who changed my life in so many ways and made me so happy. 
Bethany writes, quote, they all lit up any room they walked into and were gifts to this world. I wish every day that I could give them all one last hug and say how much I loved them. Madison was Bethany's big sister in the Pi Beta Phi sorority. Phi? Is it Phi or Phi? Looked it up. It's Phi, apparently. (laughs) So people were so pissed on my TikTok video because I said Sigma Chi or Chai. I don't know. I think I said Chi. And they were like, it's uh, Sigma Chi. And they were so mad. But either way, it's C-H-I. So I would have said Chai or Chi. Would have said it wrong. Never thought that I needed to look up how these were pronounced. So it's Sigma Chi, even though it's C-H-I. And then for Pi Beta Phi, it was very confusing online. I will say that even with the Pi, they were saying that like in France, it's P. So then it'd be P Beta Phi. And they said that like, Americans changed the phi to phi because it sounded more feminine and blah, blah, blah. So who knows? But I will tell you, I looked it up and this seems like the most likely way these things were said. And if I get them wrong, oh, well, I was never in a sorority and I did my best. (laughs) There are like so many different things, all these people from and we have people from all different countries. So and all of these different countries were saying like, no, we say it this way here. No, we say it this way here. Anyways, I'm just going to go with what I looked up. But Madison, again, was Bethany's big sister in the Pi Beta Phi sorority. And Bethany is one of the surviving roommates. So that's like very sad. They seem to be very close. It seems that Bethany and Dylan were a little younger than at least Kaylee and Madison. Xana and Ethan are younger than Kaylee and Madison. But um, so I think they almost like looked up to them a lot. You know, Kaylee was about to graduate mm-hmm. and whatnot. So what did the Moscow police find when they arrive at 1122 King Road to check on an unconscious person? Well, the scene they walk into is not something they could have ever prepared for. Inside on the second floor, they find 20-year-old Ethan Chapin and his girlfriend, 20-year-old Zana Kernado. On the third floor is 21-year-old Kaylee Goncalves and 21-year-old Madison Mogan. The scene shows clear indication that this was a quadruple homicide. As information starts to come out, people start running with rumors that were honestly really harmful to the family. Ethan's mom explains that rumors of drug overdoses and murders of like a, you know, suicide murder whatnot and all these love triangles. She just said it was really hard in those first few days to read those things because she knew that none of it was true. Like, she knew Ethan wasn't in some love triangle, that this is the reason it happened. And she knew they weren't doing drugs and yeah, all of that. So, of course, like, in this case, I think because it's such an anon, an, an anon, I can't talk, it's such an anomaly of a case. Like, so many things are so unbelievable. People have just, like, really flown off the handle with the rumors. <laughs> so, that was, like, hard for Ethan's mom. Yeah, that would be hard. Especially when it comes to rumors like about their personal lives or like who they are. Yeah. So autopsies are conducted on November 17th by the Lataw County Coroner Kathy Mabbitt. She determines that the cause of death is homicide and the manner of death is stabbing and that there are no signs of sexual assault. Somehow all four victims are stabbed multiple times, murdered in the middle of the night. Kathy determined that all of them were likely asleep when the attack started. But this doesn't mean they all remained asleep. Some victims did have defensive wounds. 
I can't be sure which victims have these wounds, as the police have not confirmed how each of them were injured. But Zana's dad, Jeffrey Kernodle, says that his daughter did have defensive wounds, which honestly would make sense. If the couple is sleeping in a bed together, the perp would likely try to harm the male first. Jeffrey says he believes Zana fought until the very end because her autopsy reveals defensive wounds to her mm-hmm. family. I did hear that. Yeah, she's the one we've kind of all heard has defensive wounds as far as the others go or honestly even the specific injuries that killed them outside of just the general you know the general word of stabbing they haven't released anything specific and there is a speculation about where Zana and Ethan are found on the second floor one of them is who the roommates would have seen and thought was unconscious but then I go back to if the girl was the one who was unconscious the roommate maybe Ethan or Zana was outside of the bedroom or maybe they just saw a lot of blood with you saying that that theory is the roommate was unconscious. It makes me not necessarily know that like Ethan or Zana were out on the ground. Maybe they did remain in her room. I'm not sure. But whatever they did see coming up onto the second floor had to have been connected to Zana and Ethan's murders because the other two girls are killed on the third floor and the police have not confirmed anywhere anywhere that they were laying they just say that they the murders start out in each room that the victims were in from there they don't say where each victim ended up in the house yeah for some reason though i have heard that uh, Zana and Ethan were at the top of the stairs. Yeah, and I think that's connected to everyone thinking that the roommate was coming up the stairs and saw them. Oh, and I they see thought what... from the bottom of the stairs, there's someone at the top of the stairs unconscious. But that may not be the but case. But if you know, if the theory is different, like that they really went to this home for the unconscious roommate, did she just go upstairs and see a lot of blood? She could have even gone as far to start going into their room and see like if they're in there who knows I think the theory kind of stemmed from the call for an unconscious person and the roommates coming up from the first floor yeah but like we said the police have not confirmed where Ethan Zana Maddie or Kaylee ended up once they were killed so before I go further into the details of the investigation so far let's talk about who these victims are because they're not just four college students they're not just victims they were somebody's child and somebody's sibling somebody's everything. So Ethan Chapin was attending the University of Moscow alongside his siblings. He is a triplet, and it seems that his parents just had this one set of triplets. So the three Chapin kids were as close as you can get. Ethan was the first triplet born, the oldest of the family, born at 4.34 p.m. on a Tuesday in October. His sister Maisie comes next, and then his brother Hunter. And they grew up side by side. They went to school side by side, attending Mount Vernon High School, and then they decided to continue that and go to college side by side. Both Ethan and Hunter were members of the fraternity Sigma Chi, and this fr- this is you know the fraternity house that Ethan and Zana were at before going back to her home. Stacy and Jim Chapin were super proud of their kids. In fact, the weekend before the murders, the couple had traveled into Moscow from their home in Conway, Washington, and they were just visiting their triplets for parents weekend. 
And after they say their goodbyes, Stacy felt this sort of peace. She says that her and Jim had a conversation about how they did it. And she says in that moment, they had no worries. Literally told each other that they no longer have to worry about these kids because all three of them are going to go on to do amazing things. I know. Isn't that so sad? Yes. She was very sad in her interview, as you would expect. Oh, yeah. Like, she just had so much good to say about Ethan. And just, you know, you could tell it was really going to impact their family. But I thought that was crazy sad that she, they that, that they literally said to each other, like, we don't even have to worry about them anymore. Like, they're grown up. They're doing great. Like, we did it. Yeah, I, I remember reading somewhere. She was like, we made it. We raised like, these kids. We, the kids are successful. They're going to be able to adult. So they had no indication that the following weekend would rip their life into shreds. When the bodies are discovered, it's not police that the Chapins hear from first. Information spreads quickly, especially among college peers. And remember, the two surviving roommates and friends are present when the discoveries are being made. So it's not surprising that Ethan's siblings catch wind of what's happening on King Road before the police have the time to check out the crime scene, identify the the victims and find the families. So it was her two other kids that informed Stacy something tragic had happened while Ethan was at Zana's home. Stacy says that this is something she will never get through because you don't expect to outlive your children. And for the Chapin family, 2 a.m. is a very dark hour. Upon clarification that their son had been murdered, Stacy and Jim pick up their other two kids from the university and they all go together to stay at their summer home in nearby Coeur d'Alene. It's here that they've tried to process what has happened. Ethan's siblings keep Stacy going. She knows this is a time in their life that they have to be lifted up and cared for. Ethan was studying sports management at the University of Idaho and he refed kids basketball on the weekends. So clearly he has a love for sports and Stacy says that that was her love language with Ethan. She would watch NFL games just to have something to chat with him about. The family watched him play sports for many years. They loved watching him excel in athletics. He played soccer, basketball, and ran cross country. And basketball was really special to Ethan because he got to play alongside his brother Hunter. And it's the summer before his school year that he really gets into golf. So him and his family are golfing a ton, which you guys can understand because all of you are obsessed (laughs) with golfing, including my own husband. (laughs) So they were going a lot the summer before and just golfing as a family. And the other thing that the family connects with Ethan on is his love for country music. Ethan was funny, always cracking jokes, always trying to make the people around him smile, and he was really good at it. Jim says that his son was kind to everyone and that he made people feel good. He was good, and he didn't deserve what happened to him. And they're absolutely right. No one deserves to be stolen out of the world like this. Ethan's memorial service was held on November 21st, 2022, but his girlfriend wasn't able to attend and honor his memory because we know she was murdered alongside him. Ethan was dating Zana Kernado, and that's the whole reason he was even in the home that night. He was just there spending the night with his girlfriend. I know, and that's like almost another, it's another tragic element on top of all of it, that he didn't even live there. So his siblings knew, did they know that he had died? I'm not sure what they knew, but they knew something happened at the house. And I'm assuming they probably caught wind. 
that people were murdered. That's horrible. Yeah. And so they called her mom, obviously, and let her know. It makes sense that because the roommates and other friends were there, that it would just quickly spread to other students. Yeah. So it is horrible. Like, what a horrible call to get. And, like, before anything's confirmed. So I'm sure they had to wait for a minute, too, for them to be identified. Should we get going? Yeah. 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 So, so tragic. So... Ethan and Zana, they had been together for about one year by this point, and they were described as having so much love for each other. They were this perfect little couple that adored one another. And Zana's dad, Jeffrey Kernodle, he had also visited the weekend before the murders, just like Ethan's parents. He was in town for Parents Weekend. And during Parents Weekend, he had updated the lock on Zana's bedroom door inside her shared home because he wanted his daughter to be safe. How could he have known evil was lurking so close and that she would be killed regardless of their safety precautions? Zana's mom was not at Parents Weekend. Her parents don't seem to have been together, and she stated that she had never had the chance to visit Zana's home in Moscow. So he literally changes the lock on her bedroom just before, but it hasn't been said by police or not if her bedroom door was locked. Zana Cronado was born in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho on July 5th, 2002, and she grows up in Post Falls, Idaho. It seems she may have spent some time in Arizona where her mom was, but she graduates from Post Falls High School in Idaho and seems to have mainly lived there with her dad and sister. In her younger years, she loved gymnastics, and by high school, she's playing volleyball and soccer as well as running track. She was athletic, she was talented, so no wonder Zana and Ethan connected so deeply. Zana was studying marketing at the university and was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. She also worked at the Vandal Solutions sales team, which is associated with the university. This is the University of Idaho Vandals. Vandals is their mascot. Zana also has another part-time job at the Mad Greek restaurant there in Moscow. Zana has a dog named Shoeshine back at home who she loved, and she thrived whenever she was at her grandma and grandpa's farm. Zana was welcoming and warm. She had a positive impact on those who were around her. And one of her favorite things to do was go on family trips with her dad and her sister. The three loved concerts, and Zana especially loved EDM music. They loved to sing and get lost in a song together. Jeffrey described Zana as being a tough kid who would do whatever she wanted to do. Anything she put her mind to, she would make it happen. And I definitely feel that with, you know, my second child, Willow, like what she wants, she will make sure she gets. And like Jeffrey said, it's tough as a parent, but you really toe that line between raising a good child and trying not to diminish that fire in them. So girls who are headstrong like Zana, they grow up to know what they want. They stand up for themselves and they have a lot of passion behind what they do. So that is how Zana is described. She's a very hard worker. She follows her dreams and she loves those around her very hard. I found some adorable videos of Zana and Ethan dressing up as Gru and Vector for one of their Halloween parties this past October. And they just both had this strong sense of humor and love to laugh. The outfits were hilarious. Your youngest, my sister, dressed up as Vector, right? Yeah, her and all her friends. <laughs> yeah, so that's what Xana was dressed up as. It was funny. She just, you know, made this video on TikTok and I was able to watch it. Xana's death has left a huge hole in the hearts of all those who loved her. 
Again, Zana and Ethan are found deceased on the second floor of the home. This is the same floor that Zana's bedroom was on. On the third floor, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonkovs are found. These two were best friends. They had years of growing up together and honestly felt more like sisters. They were inseparable. Kaylee Jade Gonkovs was born on June 8, 2001 in Concord, California. She's explained as being fire in life, even before she was born. She's the third child of Steve and Christy Goncalves, who say she was different than other little girls because she was wild. She's the middle child of five siblings, so she also has two younger siblings, three sisters and one brother, Olivia, Stephen, Autumn, and Aubrey. The Goncalves make the move to Rathdrum, Idaho, when Kaylee is about one years old. She attends Charter Academy for middle school, and this is where she meets her bestie, Maddie. Christy says, quote, after that day, we were no longer a family of five siblings. We were six. Kaylee graduates from Lake City High School and then goes on with Maddie to the University of Idaho. Kaylee joins the Alpha Phi sorority. Kaylee was studying teaching, following her dream to become an elementary school teacher. She was a social butterfly and a jokester who was always playing pranks on her family and her friends. Her passion was adventure, so much so that her family describes her leaving this earth for one more adventure. Kaylee is a hard worker. She was strong and dedicated. Her family says that she was and is love. While at the university, Kaylee brought home her fur baby, Murphy. This is the golden doodle dog who lived at the home along with the other five roommates who was there the night of the murders. Christy Goncalves says that her birthday, like her own birthday, had been earlier the same week that the murders take place. It was a quiet birthday, no big deal. Everyone was busy, so they didn't really celebrate it. But Kaylee calls her mom on Saturday, November 12th, and she tells her that she will be home that Tuesday. Kaylee's like, Mom, I'm taking you to dinner. I'm paying for it all. And her mom chuckles at the thought of Kaylee actually paying for it all, but she was excited to go to dinner. After they hang up the phone, Kaylee sends her mom some photos of her and Maddie at about 3 p.m. before everyone goes out for the evening. Christy never thought that Kaylee wouldn't make it to that birthday dinner or that this would be the last conversation she would have with her daughter. Kaylee's family is struggling with being in the dark through this investigation. Like we've said, very little information is being released by the Moscow police to the public, and unfortunately, this means that the families also have little information. But things like this have to be done to keep the integrity of the investigation. It's hard to know the exact right way to go about things. I don't think the public has any right to demand information in the case when it's being investigated, but the family certainly deserves to have, I think, a little more insight than we do. I don't know. Again, tough situation that everyone, the police and the families are just trying to handle the best they can. Steve Goncalves, Kaylee's dad, says that according to text messages his daughter sent just before the murders, it doesn't indicate she was fearful of anything. I kind of stated that earlier along with those calls. And again, they do not think the multiple calls to her longtime boyfriend, Jack Decor, were made out of fear. But that's only speculation right now. The family seems to be uneasy with the fact that, in their opinion, some people were cleared too quickly. They state that some were cleared within an hour, whatever that may mean. I don't know if it means within an hour of the investigation or within an hour of them becoming a person of interest. The family just doesn't like that the police won't share with them the alibis of everyone who has been publicly cleared. 
Steve urges police to share the alibis with him, asking why it's something that needs to be kept under wraps. Along with this, it seems that Kaylee's family hasn't had much clarification on that 911 phone call either. So they're very much in the dark, just as we are. And that does happen in these investigations. Now, are they the ones, is that her dad that was a little bit more outspoken? Yes. And I'm about to go over. He is definitely angry, which I don't blame him at all. So there is one interview he does where that anger and frustration really comes out. Which, I mean, you know, people are just so rude online. People are rude about the police. They're rude about the families. Which, like, to everyone who's rude, it's like, you know, you've got to give all of them grace. Like, the police are doing... Well, yeah, you've never been through it. No. The police are doing the best they can. Like, they obviously care about the case. It's been four weeks. And let me tell you, this isn't CSI. It's not like they can take samples and get them tested in an hour. Like, to sift through (laughs) all the tips. There's thousands of tips. How many tips do you think they can follow up on in one day? You know? Yeah. So it's not surprising to me that it's been a month. And then it's also not surprising to me that the family is frustrated. Yeah. That it's, It's you know, taking too long. And yeah, how could you not? Like, you would just have a general anger that this even happened. Yeah. And so it's going to come out at some point. So, yes. Um, he has a lot of sadness and a lot of rage and there is this interview where Steve seems to have released some of that pent up frustration in the interview. Steve says, quote, I'll cut to the chase. Their means of death don't match. And this is when the reporter clarifies asking if based on the autopsies autopsy reports, Kaylee and Maddie's deaths don't match. Christy and Steve say they don't. They don't match. Steve goes on to say, quote, he doesn't have to go up the steps. Let's let's stop playing games, guys. I need somebody to step up and be an alpha, be somebody to be a leader. Don't make me do it. I don't want to do it. He doesn't have to go up the steps. They're mad that their points of damage don't match. I'm just going to say it. It wasn't leaked to me. I earned that. I paid for that funeral. I paid for that. It's my right. You ain't taking that away from me. Now, Christy jumps in and she's saying, like, calm down. But Steve continues, quote, don't say I'm leaking anything. I paid that bill. I sent my daughter to college to get an education. She came back in a box and I can speak on that. He's obviously frustrated. But like he said, like he sent his daughter to college and she's coming home dead. He's frustrated and he feels like he can talk about it. Yeah, because they don't want him to say stuff, right? They don't want him to leak stuff for the investigation. So I'm sure they're not going to give him much now. Yeah. And so that is kind of where it's like, even for me, like towing the line between like I am on the family side of like, I want them to have answers and whatnot. And then I'm also on the side of the investigation where I want it to be like a great investigation. It's hard because both sides are doing the best they can. Honestly, through that statement, there is a lot to unpack there. I don't even know. I can't even really theorize on what there is to unpack. So I'll just kind of leave it here because police have not confirmed any of these statements. After this, web sleuths spiral on the fact that either Maddie or Kaylee were more brutally attacked because Steve and Christy are saying the deaths don't match. 
But mm. Steve and Christy didn't say how the deaths don't match or who was in worse condition. So, you know, web sleuths are spiraling saying it was Kaylee. Yeah. But they really don't clarify that. In fact, he does another interview shortly after this where he says he is trusting the police have a good case and that he's going to hope that the reason they are keeping the information so close to the chest is because they have a good case, which I also side note. Do you say close to the chest or close to the vest? Because I heard another podcast where this girl was like, it bugs me so bad when people say close to the chest because it's close to the vest. But I've always said chest, so I'm going to continue going with that. I don't say either of them. You don't? (laughs) (laughs) I say close to the chest all the time, but it's like if I'm like protecting something or keeping something close, I'm never wearing a vest, but I always have a chest. So I'm always oh keeping it close. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out, guys, in I case it I is. I don't even think I've ever <laughs> even heard that saying. Oh, that's funny. I just heard one of my favorite podcasters. That's why. That's it was Jillian off True Crime Obsessed. And she was like, that is so annoying because it's close to the vest. And I was like, dang, I say it the other way, but I'm going to continue to do so. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not wearing a vest. Because I see it as chest. <laughs> I'm never wearing a vest. I'm not keeping anything close to a vest. I'm keeping it close to my chest. (laughs) So anyway, in case people were like, that's not the saying. Thought I'd disclaimer there because, you know, people love to let you know what you are wrong on. So annoying. Those little things. So continuing on with, you know, Steve's, the second interview Steve does, Steve admits that he probably should have never disclose the information about the deaths differing from each other. When he is asked if he can disclose who seemed more targeted, he says that he cannot reveal that information. He asked police if he could, and they asked him not to make it public. In fact, he says the police wished he wouldn't have made those statements to begin with. I'm sure. He ends up saying, like, by the end of that video, he, he says... You know, I'm not going to go away. Quote, I hate to be a pain, but as a father, I just can't even sleep thinking I could be doing something. So although you can tell there is this tension because of the second interview, it seems that police likely had a conversation with the Goncalves family after seeing how upset Steve was. Because if you watch that interview, you can feel he's like mad, you know. Like, it's just coming out. Oh, yeah. Like, I can Mm -hmm. say that. I can talk on that, which I don't disagree with him. Like, you, it is your daughter. Like, you can talk on it. But the police want to keep the integrity of the investigation intact. So, again, yeah, hard line to toe. It looks like the Goncalves family did have a meeting with police where they say Brian Enton reported that Quote, the theme of the meeting was two things, accountability and communication. And this was said by Shannon Gray, who is the new attorney for the Goncalves family. They have hired her just to be their voice. What the Goncalves family was asking police for is to get information consistently because they had learned all this new info like that was coming out from the news and they didn't really think that was fair. They do think that families should be contacted before the media, which honestly I agree with. Like I do think families should be closer to the investigation than anyone else outside of the police force, like definitely closer than the media. So most of their questions about the investigation did not get answered. They are still keeping those details close, 
but hopefully there will just be more communication between the family and the police and things can um, be a little less tense between them. Now, which which girl is it theorized that had the stalker? Kaylee. Okay. Which I'll talk about a little bit later as well. So this is her parents were talking about. And, you know, there is a celebration of life ceremony soon after the murders for the four victims. Kaylee's mom, Christy, says she believes her daughter's killer did know her very well. And in her opinion, this person was probably there at the vigil or attended, you know, different memorial services. Was it someone who had been in the girl's home for a party? This is just Christy's personal belief that Kaylee did know her killer. So at the celebration of life ceremony, Kaylee's parents read a poem she wrote titled Milk and Honey. Quote, most important is love. Like it's the only thing you know. At the end of the day, all of this means nothing. This page where we're sitting, your degree, your job, the money, nothing even matters except love and human connection. Who you love and how deep you, deeply you love them. How you touch the people around you and how much you give them. So Kaylee's parents were very proud of her. Kaylee and Maddie were able to experience all these incredible things together. Maddie's mom had taken them to Hawaii. Kaylee's family had taken them to Mexico. Seriously, the girls are like soul sisters. Kaylee's obituary ends with, quote, She came into the world surrounded by family and love and left the same way with her chosen sister, Maddie Mogan, by her side. And when reporter Brian Enton interviews Kaylee's family, he noticed that they had Kaylee and Maddie's ashes sitting side by side. And they did this because they just wanted to keep them together. So I'm not sure if both families got a little of each or. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Madison Mogan was born on May 25th, 2001 in Eugene, Oregon. She lived there for about two years before her family moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in the northern part of the state. She ends up attending Charter Academy Middle School, where we know she meets Kaylee. But as their high school years approach, the girls want desperately to leave their charter school and attend the public high school. It was not an easy feat, but they write letters to their parents and convince them to let the girls transfer. So Maddie also graduates from Lake City High School alongside Kaylee. She goes on to attend the University of Idaho and was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. Maddie excels in her academics. She made the dean's list every semester at the university. Her mom, Karen Laramie, had a very close bond with Maddie, and she looked up to her bonus dad, Scott Laramie. Maddie was Benjamin Mogan's only child. I'm not sure about Karen, since she is remarried, but for Benjamin, Maddie is his one and only. Maddie is described as happy and nice, but everyone knew they needed to make sure she did not go hungry, because then she wasn't going to be so happy which most of us can probably relate to. So Maddie loved live music and had even been able to travel to Canada for a music festival. Benjamin says that he feels a bit of peace knowing Maddie was able to experience true love with her longtime boyfriend, Jake Schreiger. Jake gives a speech at the Celebration of Life held on Friday, December 2nd, 2022. The couple had been together for two years and they were best friends. Jack remembers Maddie always pushing him to spread positivity. She was usually joking and dancing and laughing her way through life. And he can't forget her love of comfort. She thrived in a pair of fuzzy socks and a cozy blanket. And you know this is where I connect with Maddie because me too. There are very few things more important to me oh, yeah. than being comfy sweats. in sweats. Yep. 
I am always in sweats. I absolutely adore being comfortable. So when he made, when I was watching his speech, I was like, oh yeah, that sounds like my kind of girl being comfy. So Jack says that Maddie knew her worth and that she definitely made him work for her, but every second was worth it. He says that her jokes were one of a kind and that they would really shock everyone around her and she'd just like make them out of nowhere. She seems like very funny. She was genuine. She was confident and he's not sure how he's going to navigate this grief. But one thing he knows is that he cannot wait to see her again and give her a big hug. So how were four beautiful people taken from their loved ones in such an unfair way? It's hard to sit with when you really think about these four people who just went to sleep inside of their home after a fun night out. None of them thought that they wouldn't be waking up that morning. None of them thought that they would be brutally attacked in their own beds. So who did this? How did they do it? And why? Let's dive into some of the connections that have been made in the case. And I'm going to, with each connection or theory, I tried to just stick with theories that the police have like confirmed or not confirmed you know yeah so everything the police made a statement on I'll kind of get into just so you know where the police stand on each of these theories so not only is the Moscow Police Department working the quadruple homicide but they are also being assisted by other departments Four Moscow police detectives are working the case along with 25 patrol officers and five support staff. The FBI has 22 investigators in Moscow and has 20 other assigned agents to the case in other areas within Idaho, Utah, and West Virginia. Two behavioral analysis investigators are assigned to the case as well. And the Idaho State Police have 20 investigators working it, 15 troopers, a public information officer, as well as providing their forensic services and mobile crime scene team. Investigators have collected hundreds of pieces of evidence, as well as taking about 4,000 crime scene photographs. But among all of that, the murder weapon has never been found. Police have still not located the murder weapon, which is believed to be a fixed blade knife, meaning it had a blade that could not be retracted or folded into the handle. And that's not just believed. I said believed there. That is confirmed by the police that it is a fixed blade knife. So not a pocket knife. This seems to be something more like a kitchen knife or a hunting knife. Now, of course, as this case has shocked the community, the web sleuths have gone ham searching for inf information. And this can be helpful in some ways, but it can also be harmful when it's done without thought of the investigation and without taking precautions not to spread rumors. Again, we kind of, you know, jumped back to people getting harassed and the police have released concern about the harassment of those involved and urged the public to not listen to rumors or threaten people that they think might have to do with it. Just let the police work the investigation before you go out threatening people. So let's go through some of the things that have been said in this case and what police have to say about it. First, we know that Maddie and Kaylee are seen at the grub truck just before coming home. I stated earlier that there is vi video footage of this. In this video, you can see that there is a guy in a gray hoodie and a black coat. He seems to be with the girls coming into the frame following them and then leaving the frame behind them. People become really suspicious of this man because he seems to sort of keep his distance from the girls. He interacts with Maddie and Kaylee like a little bit, but not too much. And he puts his hoodie up shortly after coming into the frame on the camera. 
When the internet finds out who exactly he is, they go digging and people are floored to learn that he's an avid hunter. But keep in mind, hunting is very common here in Idaho. There is a lot of speculation about him leaving town the day of the murders and going on a vacation and whatnot, but those are all rumors and they're not corroborated by the police. Investigators have made a statement that they don't believe the man seen with Maddie and Kaylee at the grub truck has anything to do with the murders. It seems that he was just trying to look out for them. He came with them and he knew they had been drinking. His name is also Jack. I'm not going to share his last name since he has been cleared by the police, but this is just another Jack in the investigation. So we've got food truck Jack and ex-boyfriend Jack Decor, and who have both been cleared by the Moscow police. There is also a third Jack. We'll just call him Jack K. Again, I'm not sharing his last name because he is not a suspect in this case. This Jack is said to have been friends with Ethan Chapin. He is a fellow member of the Sigma Chi fraternity. Allegedly, a payment on Venmo was sent from Ethan to Jack K just four hours before the murders. It's Ethan's last transaction. And this isn't shocking. I think we all use Venmo with our friends if we're out and one person pays or if we forget our wallet. Jack K is the first person also to donate to a GoFundMe page dedicated to Ethan following the murders. He donates six dollars. Still, not weird. If they're friends, of course he's going to donate. He's a college kid. Maybe $6 is all he can afford right at that moment. Yeah. What people are finding strange is that through looking at Jack K's Venmo, web sleuths find that Jack's sister Liz is on Venmo. So, you know, they see Ethan makes his last payment. They click on Jack's name on Venmo. And then they see that Jack has a sister on Venmo, Liz. Their last names match. So people click on her profile and they find a payment made from a girl who is friends with Ethan on Facebook. And from this girl, there's a payment to Jack's sister. The payment is made at 3.45 p.m. on November 12th, 2022, and it's captioned 3.30 a.m. So this is what gets everyone right. Like that through following the trail of connections, they end up on this payment referring to 3.30 a.m. when we know police believe the four students were murdered between 3 and 4 a.m. the following morning. But although there are all these micro connections, it's probably just that all of these people knew each other from being peers at the college and these transactions likely have nothing to do with the murder. Police have not made any statements on this. They have not mentioned any of these people uh, as persons of interest. I just saw a lot of people spiraling on this third Jack. I know. <laughs> it, there's just so many things in this case that are really hard for people to wrap their mind around. Again, it's probably nothing. And like I said, police haven't even made a statement on it. But I, I would assume if people continue to theorize on that, police will come out with a statement on what they think about that. They'll probably investigate it, as I'm sure it was sent into the tip line, yeah. and then they will either clear it or they won't. Now, going back to the Grubhub footage, there's like a bunch of other people who can be seen on camera. It's almost 2 a.m., but remember, this is a college town on a Saturday night, so yeah, there are a lot of kids out partying, and then grabbing food is a must on your way home. So you can see that the girls are a little bit drunk, but who cares, right? Everyone wants to point out and act like it's a huge deal that they're drunk. 
But like, yeah, I would say most people at the grub truck were probably drunk or had been drinking. Why is that a big deal to people? Because people are just annoying. I like, you know, I've just seen in the videos like, oh, my gosh, they're so drunk. Oh, my gosh. Maddie's so drunk. Like they just make all those comments. I just wanted to like let people know here. Like, yeah, not a big deal. And everybody was probably drunk in that footage. But the reason, like the full reason I mention it is because there is another guy who was at the food truck that also thinks, you know, had made mention of Maddie being very drunk. This is Joe V from the food truck. Joe is a man that can be seen talking to food truck Jack in the surveillance video. So when the girls are waiting for their foods, Joe V and food truck Jack start chatting. In the original footage release, like I think it was just on TikTok, you know, it was a short clip and it was from the angle where they're ordering food. But this is this other angle. And actually, food truck Jack looks like much less suspicious in this other angle. He's just like chatting with this guy, like totally normal. And again, police have said they don't believe he has anything to do with the murders anyway. Yeah. So Joe and food truck Jack are chatting. And Joe is not a suspect in this case, and the police have never mentioned him as being suspicion, suspicious or as a person of interest. Joe had heard about the murder, and after talking with his buddies, also seen on this footage, they believe the girls murdered were the ones they saw at the food truck the night before. So Joe calls the police, telling them he believes they were at the truck and he remembers seeing them. He never gets a phone call back by the time that the surveillance video is released. And when he sees that he is on the video, he confirms for a fact that the girls he saw that night were Madison and Kaylee. So now he goes into the police station in person. He tells police what he saw and he has been cooperative. Joe V and Food Truck Jack are seen in the footage chatting for quite a bit of time. And Joe says that Food Truck Jack was super nice and that he didn't get any bad vibes from him. Joe says he's not defending food truck Jack. He just thought the rumors were getting out of hand. And he's not wrong because we know police have stated they don't believe food truck Jack is involved. Joe remembers the girl's ride arrives. He says they hop into a car without food truck Jack. And then he says he's like, oh, dude, like they left. And Jack is like, what the heck? And then he kind of walks off. So. Although it seems Joe did the right thing by coming forward and sharing with police what he saw, the internet goes after him, of course. Now, he comes on to everyone's radar as being suspicious. And after watching Jovi tell what happened in his own words, I watched a video of him talking about it. I'm pretty sure he is also not connected to this murder. It seems he really did go to the police just to let them know he did see the girls at the grub truck. Again, the police have not made any indication that he is involved. So here is my little piece of advice for Joe. I think the thing that rubbed people the wrong way was how he talked about Madison to the media following the murders. Joe said, quote, the taller girl with the pink on. She was glass eyed. I audibly said, ew, out loud. She was just stumbling through. Which like when I saw that, I was like, yeah. You don't like talk about someone who was just murdered by explaining you said ew about them. Yeah. For me, it's like we might say things in the moment that aren't the kindest. But when you find out that they were literally killed, you should probably like not repeat the unkind things you said. Exactly. 
because I was taken back when I read that. Like, I was like, what? Like, that's such a weird thing to say that you would tell the media. I audibly said, ew, out loud. And in his video that he makes on TikTok and, you know, tells his story himself, he's like, that's what you say. Like when someone walks past you and they're super drunk and you can like smell it and they're like too drunk. Like, that's just what you say to your friends. Like, ew. So, Joe, no, that's not what you say. Just leave it alone. Get them help. Especially. Yeah. It doesn't sound very like sympathetic. No. Right. So when people saw that, they were like. Mm-mm, this dude's weird I get because I read it and I was like yeah I don't I don't like you talking about a any girl who's drunk walking past you to say ew that's super rude and and don't repeat it about somebody that dies you don't say ew yes that's where it really rubbed me the wrong way like I don't think it necessarily points to guilt of a heinous act I just think it was a dumb comment and he probably did not realize it would strike such a nerve so that was my advice to not say ooh about people <laughs> and definitely don't repeat it. Oh, yeah. Basically, everyone you've seen pop up connected to this case has not been mentioned by police or has been cleared. Remember, the family of Kaylee Goncalves does feel that some people were cleared too quickly, but I'm not sure who they're referring to. There are other strange things that have happened that the internet detectives wanted to latch on to. And here's what police had to say about those incidents. At 3.01 a.m. on November 13th, there was an officer dispatched to the area of Taylor Avenue and Band Field. This is right next to the home on 1122 King Road. Police have come out to say that this was an alcohol offense and is not related to the murder investigation. So a police officer was there right by the home at 3.01 a.m. on the night, on the morning the murders occurred. So with the body cam footage that they had from this little alcohol incident, they walked these kids across the street. And then in the background, Brian Enton was able to see that there were these figures that ran across, like, the footage it looks like they're walking fast or running across. It's like a person or multiple people. And this is about 200 feet below where um, the murder scene that that house is. So that was just something he noticed trying to get clarity on, you know, what these figures in the body cam footage were doing. But police have not said anything about that or that anything they found in this incident was related to the crime. On September 12th, 2022, there is commotion on a bike path near the University of Idaho. During this confrontation, a biker pulls out a folding knife. The argument ends here and each person goes their separate ways. This case was investigated and there were misdemeanor charges brought forward. The Moscow Police Department has made a statement that there is no connection between this person and the murders. In February of 2022, there is a death on Baker Street in Moscow. The Lataw County Coroners was able to confirm the death was an overdose and has nothing to do with a quadruple homicide. So again, these are all statements being made by the police to things they've been asked about and to theories of like things people are finding around Moscow that they're wondering, is this related? And after the murders, there's this red Mustang on Deacon Street being searched. It was rumored that this vehicle was being processed as a part of the murder investigation. The police have said this car is not connected to the murders. Then there's this incident on Blaine Street on November 21st, 2022. 
It's about a week after the murders where two young women go outside. When one girl opens the driver's side door of her car, she sees a man literally sitting in the passenger seat. She slams the door and it's her sister that's with her and they say the guy gets out of the car and starts chasing them. They're running and they're screaming. One of them is able to pull out their phone and dial 911. Neighbors come out of their homes when they hear the screaming. However, neighbors report that they did not see anyone inside of the vehicle or anyone exit the vehicle. So police check the surrounding areas but are unable to find anyone. I guess the officers close the case and determine it's an unfounded incident and that no crime occurred but say that if additional information is brought forward, they can reopen the case. This is a week after? After. After the murders? Yeah. I'm not really sure why they would just, like, close the case because they couldn't find the guy or, I guess, because neighbors say they didn't see anyone in the car or get out of the car. So it almost seems that the police are alluding that this incident did not take place almost like it's made up yeah that's what I was wondering but then like it's very hard for me to believe that two people would agree to like do this scam but you know I've seen crazier things but the family of these two girls makes a statement and says like she's very grateful they're very grateful that you know neighbors were able to aid their daughters scary now there is this other very odd series of events. There is an incident reported of deceased animals being left on the girl's property, but apparently investigators determined this to be wildlife activity that was not related to the murders. This isn't just like rumors that there were deceased animals on the property like after. There is an incident report of deceased animals being left on the girl's property. That makes me think they called in saying these animals are being left in our yard. But again, investigators say it's just wildlife activity and not related to the murders. What's chilling to me and very odd is when it's brought up alongside an incident out of the Lataw County Sheriff's Office. This happened just one month before the murders. There is a report of a dog being skinned. Now, police say this has no connection. Jim and Pam Colbert were the owners of a 12-year-old mini Australian Shepherd. The dog's name is Buddy, which is ironic actually because my husband's grandparents had an Australian Shepherd named Buddy. He passed away a few years ago, but Pam, who is 78 years old, rescued her little Buddy from a puppy mill five years ago. The couple lives just three miles away from the murder scene. It's October 21st when the couple lets their dog out of the house, but he never returns from going to the bathroom. They're confused because Buddy never leaves the yard. Once they find him, they almost felt like someone was waiting for him. When Buddy first goes missing, they assume he got distracted and he ran off. Maybe he chased something. So they go out looking for him that night with some friends who ultimately find him disposed in a field. Pam says his little legs had fur as well as his face, but the rest of him was completely skinned. She says, quote, the other side of him was as though they had filleted him like they were about to eat him. It was terrible. Buddy's neck was also cut. Jim, who is 73 years old, said that just before this incident, he had found a rabbit nearby his home that was mutilated with its scalp and ears sliced off. Now that is what you say ew to. Yeah, that. 
Jovi <laughs> is what you say to. Absolutely. And like scary. So the first responding officer comes and is like, oh, yeah, this is just wildlife stuff. Like an animal did this. Oh, really? An animal took the skin off of my dog's entire body except its face and its legs? No. So a second officer comes out and is like, absolutely not. This could not have been done by an animal. Ultimately, a sheriff's deputy with the Lataw County Sheriff's Office is sent to take photos for the report, and they confirm that Buddy was killed by a human. Now, to me, this seems sketch, combined with the fact that there is a literal report of dead animals being left on the property. But for some reason, the police have stated that the skin dog incident is not related to the quadruple murder. Like, I need a little more reassurance to believe that there's no connection. If you haven't caught the person who skinned the dog and you haven't caught the person who did the murders, then how do you know they're not related? Okay, guys, I'm hopping in here to record a little excerpt after I we already recorded this earlier, but I talked to my husband about this skinned dog situation that night after we recorded. And I was just like, do you think this is super weird? Like, I think it's so weird. Like, I want to know what you think about it. Because my hunt, my husband has done hunting all of his life. And, you know, he's from here in Idaho and all of that. And what he told me did make me think it was less weird and see a little clearer why police might have cleared this situation and said that it's not connected. Again, like when I read something in the media, sometimes it's nice for me to then clarify by just talking to someone with like more real life experience because from what the article read, like it seemed so brutal and it was. It The sad thing is, is that for these dog owners, whether this was done purposefully or on accident as like someone hunting, it's horrific for, for the owners. Um, but I was telling my husband about it and he was saying that it does sound exactly like how you would skin an animal. And that skinning an animal isn't really brutal. Like, I don't know what time little buddy went missing or anything, but he just said, like, the like most likely thing is that it had to have been a young kid or just an idiot who was hunting coyotes, which you can hunt, like, all the time, and they probably accidentally killed this dog thinking it was a coyote, and then they skin it. Like, that is something that could have happened you know the collar rings a little weird for me because like would you still skin it when you realize it was a dog like is it just some dumbass that wants to hunt regardless I don't know you know there's a million scenarios the collar could have gotten off before or whatnot I did want to say that because if you're a hunter you're probably like no that's how you skin an animal like he did say having the fur on the legs having the fur on the face like that is exactly how you would do it and as for like the filleting side or she said you know it seemed like her dog was gutted like a deer like he said that is like very common in how you would hunt skin an animal and then get meat from them so is it someone doing this like being weird or was it someone just being a literal idiot and 
hunting irresponsibly. I don't know. I don't know. But I just wanted to throw that in there that maybe that is why police have ruled it out. All of these community incidents are said by police not to be related to the four murders. And it's during one press conference that the media asks police if they are aware of stabbings that have occurred in nearby states. They said that they are aware and they are looking into any possible connections, but they later make a statement saying, quote, There have been numerous media inquiries about a 1999 double stabbing in Pullman, Washington, and a 2021 double stabbing with one death in Salem, Oregon. While these cases here share similarities with the King Street homicides, there does not appear to be any evidence to support that these cases are related. So police are saying as of now, there is no connection. But this is the second thing. Like I said with the skinned dog, how can they know if the other stabbings also remain unsolved? Like how can you tell me for sure they're not related if you don't know who did it in either case? Well, we don't know if they don't know who did it. That's true, right? Like, we don't know what they know. They know a lot more than me and you know. Yeah. With kind of both of these incidents, I just need a little more to know when both, when all the things remain unsolved. I actually don't think the 1999 stabbing has anything to do with the case. In fact, just after the murders on November 27th, 2022, a man by the name of Duong Tran pleads guilty to the crimes. He was here from Vietnam on a 12-year visa, and he had stabbed his ex-wife and her roommate while yielding four knives on the night of May 25th, 1999. The two women were able to escape and were not killed. Duong was sentenced to a little less than six years. Now, for the stabbing in Salem, Oregon, it does weigh on my mind. Just a little more than one year before these murders, there was a couple attacked inside their home on August 13th, 2021. Travis and Jamie Lynn Jutton, or Juin, I'm not sure exactly how you pronounce that last name, but Travis and Jamie Lynn were 26 and 24 years old, and they went to sleep in their bedroom on this August 13th night. They're ready. They're getting ready to depart for a trip to Hawaii the next day. And they had hired a friend to come over and cat sit during their Hawaii trip. So she's also there in the home. While the house is quiet, an intruder comes into their home with a knife. Travis and Jamie Lynn are woken up at about 3 a.m. And Travis fought his attacker fiercely, which wakes up their house guest. Their friend scares off the perp by calling down, saying they're on the phone with 911. Travis was killed during the attack. Jamie Lynn was stabbed 19 times, but she survived. And she said the person who attacked her was a masked intruder. So she couldn't really give any information on this person. So were you guys able to pick up any similarities between the two cases? First, Salem, Oregon is only a six-hour drive from Moscow, Idaho. And second, the stabbing takes place around 3 a.m. in Salem, Oregon, while the murders in Moscow are believed to have happened sometime between 3 and 4 a.m. And third, Travis is killed on August 13th, while Zana, Ethan, Maddie, and Kaylee are killed on November 13th. It's not the same month, but it's the same day of the month and the same time frame. So, Travis's murder has remained unsolved and all these connections are the reason that people noticed that they're just similar cases. Travis Jutin also deserves attention on his case, whether or not they're connected, which police say they don't believe they are. 
Travis's family is offering a $50,000 reward for information that may lead investigators to his murder. And I can't imagine the trauma his wife experienced and what she has to work through since being attacked herself Mm. alongside her husband who was killed. Yeah. Like, that's very horrific to go through. That's sad. Yeah, so sad. Again, police say they're not related, but I hope that Travis's killer is also caught. So then there is this other stabbing that happens in Washigal, Washington. And this area is only one hour away from Salem, Oregon, and it's a five-hour, 45-minute drive from Moscow, Idaho. On June 14th, 2020, 71-year-old Sandra Galen Ladd is found stabbed to death inside her home. This is two years before the murders in Moscow and one year before Travis's stabbed to death in Salem, Oregon. Sandra had been stabbed in her torso while sleeping in her bed. She had, previous, she had previously worked as an administrative assistant in the Washgow School District from 1986 to 2016. She herself had graduated from Washagall High School back in 1967, and then she went on to the University of Washington. Sandra loved traveling, she loved Hawaii, and she was a mother and grandmother who adored her family. Now, Sandra was found in her home on June 14th at about 4.30 p.m., but I haven't seen an estimated time of death or if it's even possible that she was stabbed on the night of June 13th. If that's the case, it again rings eerily coincidental to the other stabbings occurring on the 13th day of the month. And this case was not mentioned when police stated they didn't currently see a connection to the 1999 stabbing or the 2021 stabbing. So I'm not sure what their thoughts are on that. Sandra's case also remains unsolved. So there's one other case that I've seen speculation of, but it's more of a stretch because it takes place in Charleston, Illinois. Although some killers do travel, you know, like that's not unheard of. But the strange thing is that this stabbing takes place on June 13th, 2021 at 3 a.m. This is two months before Travis and Jamie Lynn are stabbed inside their home. So June 13th, um, Sandra was also June 13th, but of 2020. So the year before. So Sandra, June 13th, 2020. Now there's this one, June 13th, 2021. Travis and Jamie Lynn, August 13th, 2021. And then the murder at, in Moscow in, on November 13th, 2022. With this other case, the weird thing is, of course, the day and the time. The perp enters this young woman's home while she was sleeping. And she's woken up to being stabbed but she manages to escape, running to a neighbor's home and getting help. She's taken to the hospital and treated for her injuries. This woman survives and this case remains unsolved. It's just like, what are the odds you're attacked in the middle of the night on the 13th day of the month at 3 a.m.? And maybe it's a coincidence, but each case deserves to be solved. Like I said, police say that the 1999 stabbing and the 2021 stabbing have no connection to the stabbing in Moscow. They have made no comment on the 2020 stabbing and the 2021 Illinois stabbing. I mean, I do think it's kind of a stretch. The Illinois one or all of them? Kind of. I don't know. All of them. I feel like I feel like they did know them. You do? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's why I like kind of buy into it because I feel the opposite. You don't feel like they knew them? I feel like they didn't know them. No, but that's just like my personal gut feeling. I just feel like so hard for me to believe that some other random college kid goes from 
like being a friend to killing four people. And it's just hard for me to see how one person could be targeted and then three others are like also brutally murdered. I think the biggest thing to me is if you knew them, why did you leave the two roommates on the bottom floor alive? You would have known there were two other people that lived there. But again, I have no idea. And the police. Maybe they liked them. Maybe. So, I mean, and a lot of people do think they knew them, including Kaylee's family. It's so hard to know. So it probably is why I can kind of see that connection because it almost feels more random to me. Well, it's like when you're randomly going to go stab people, like you are going to do it in the middle of the night. Yeah. So it's likely to be around that timing. Yeah. Around 3 a.m. I just like don't hear very often of people getting stabbed to death like in the middle of the night and then it goes unsolved like by an intruder so but again I have no idea only the police could know where what direction they're headed in that's just my like random thoughts from looking at it I know I hope they find out soon me too As far as the investigation into the murders of Zana, Ethan, Kaylee, and Madison, the police have released little to no information. I'm positive they know a lot more than we do and that they are doing what is best for the investigation. I mentioned they collected evidence at the scene and took thousands of photos. They have sent things to be forensically tested and started to receive results back that they are keeping private. There are three dumpsters along King Road that have had the content seized by police looking for evidence. The police have visited local businesses in search of recently purchased fixed blade knives, and there have been thousands of tips called in and emailed in by the public. It takes time to sort through those tips. I kind of said that earlier, like it's been just about a month since these murders took place. One tip they received was that Kaylee mentioned having a stalker. Police haven't really been able to verify this information and are still looking for more information regarding the stalker claims. They were able to talk with one man who had seen Kaylee at a store there in Moscow. He was with a friend and he walked out of the store at the same time as Kaylee. The police say that he was with his friend looking to pick up girls, but he doesn't actually make the contact with Kaylee. This could have been seen as a stalker type situation on Kaylee's end. As of now, this is all police have found relating to the claims. So one of the last things I'd like to mention is the layout of the home. This is a large home that six roommates could share. We know only five roommates were there living at the time of the murders. I'm going to try and explain this the best I can. So when you walk in the front door where the cars were parked, you would come to the first floor. The first floor door was noticed as being slightly open by a neighbor on the morning the bodies are found. There are apartment buildings and other homes located all around. So the parking area they parked in seemed to be a part of a larger parking area lot for like many surrounding apartments as well. So you walk into this first floor and this is where Bethany and Dylan's rooms are located. They are down on the first floor. You can go up the stairs and come to the second floor. The house is sort of backed up into a hill. So the front of the house features all three stories while the back of the house only shows two stories. So from the backyard you can enter onto the second floor of the home via the sliding glass door. On the second floor, there are two bedrooms, the living room, the laundry room, and the kitchen. The kitchen is the first thing you would come to when entering through the sliding glass door. And then one bedroom has to be entered through the laundry room. So, you you know, from the living room, you'd have to go through the laundry room and into the bedroom. 
this is believed to be Zana's bedroom. Below this bedroom, there are photos that have been released from the outside of the home that seem to show blood dripping from the inside of the home and down the concrete. It is not confirmed that this is the case as investigators have made no comment, but what appears to be blood is not present in earlier photos. The stairs leading up from the first floor to the second floor come up near the laundry room and into the living room, and the stairs leading from the second floor to the third floor are located through the kitchen and then to the right if you walked inside the sliding glass door from the backyard. It's an odd house if you look at it from the side. The first floor and the third floor seem to be smaller than the second floor, like they're almost like half floors. Um, the third floor only features the two bedrooms of Madison Mogan and Kaylee Goncalves. There is a deck over the patio of the second floor entrance, like over that sliding glass door. And one of these bedrooms has access to the deck via another sliding glass door. This, is, this one's directly above the second floor glass door. There has been speculation that Kaylee and Madison stayed in the same room that night, but this has not been confirmed by officers on the investigation. As police have kept the house a crime scene, they have let the lights on in the exact way they were on the night of the murders. When I saw a video of the home at night, it gave me chills because this home was lit up. There's something about light that makes us feel more safe, but this killer just walked into a home that didn't even give an indication that everyone was asleep. From the backyard, you can see outside string lights across the bottom of the deck and over the patio, and they light up the outside of that sliding glass door. Inside, the kitchen lights are on, and you can see right into the kitchen. From the front of the house, you can see the lights in the living room were on, and you can see right into the living room through a window that has no blinds. If you look close, you can see a sign that's lit up as well. It says, Good Vibes which was just eerie and sad. But the outside lights are also turned on in the front of the house, lighting up the front door entrance. There's an officer on watch each night parked in front of the home, protecting the crime scene. Now, I will mention one area of the home that seems to be darker. It's not lit up with lights. It's under the deck into in the backyard. So the sliding glass door is lit up with lights, but if you go further under the deck, the lights don't shine there and it's a bit darker. There is a window there and below the window is a cinder block. It's claimed that this window did not have a screen on it, so there is speculation that this could have been the entry point for the intruder. Police have not confirmed how the killer came into the home. Well, they also had a code, coded keypad. Yes, that front door is a coded keypad, like, lock. So I'm not sure if it locks automatically. Mm -hmm. And they said a lot of people had the code to it. Yes, Kaylee's... Because it was like a party house. Yeah, Kaylee's older sister, sister, Olivia, did say the front door code a lot of people had access to. As of now, this is pretty much all the information that has been relayed by the investigators. So, how can you help? Detective have ha Detectives have asked for all outside surveillance video taken from 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. on Sunday, November 13, 2022, from businesses and residents within a geographical area that they do have posted. And it doesn't matter if you don't see something you think is important to the investigation. There could be something that you don't realize will help. 
Some of the areas they're seeking video from are West Taylor Avenue, West Palouse River Drive, Highway 95 South to the 2700 block of Highway 95 South, and Arbitorium and Botanical Garden. You can email tips, pictures, and videos to tipline at ci.moscow.id.us or call the tip line at 208-883-7180. Even if you are outside of these areas, detectives want to see any video or information you may have from the night of November 12th to the morning of November 13th. They are still seeking information regarding Xana and Ethan's time at the Sigma Chi fraternity home. Governor Brad Little directed up to $1 million in state emergency funds for this investigation, and the Moscow police, the Idaho State Police, and the FBI are taking it very seriously. Just a few days ago, the police have asked for help in locating a 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. Police believe the owner of this car may be helpful in aiding them in their investigation. The vehicle was located in the immediate area of the King Street residence during the early morning hours of November 13th. They're asking anyone that may have been driving a vehicle matching the description to call in. If you know of anyone who has driven a vehicle like this around at the time of the murders, please call in. Again, you can call tips to 208-883-7180 and email tips to tipline at ic.moscow.id.us. So with the information that police are asking for surrounding this white car, they have gotten some surveillance video. Brian Enton reported that they have gotten video from a liquor store and a gas station there in Moscow. They're both about a mile from the murder scene from the house, um, but they are in different directions. He talked to the liquor store who said that They turned over surveillance to the police within this last week and that there are cameras inside and outside and they handed all the footage over. One other thing I'll mention surrounding this car is, and I'm not going to get really deep into it and police have not made any comment on this, but there are some people who have come out and said that a guy they worked with that rubbed them very wrong does drive a car like this. It's a Hyundai, but it's not like an Elantra. It's a Sonata. I'm probably saying all these words wrong, but they said that he drives a white car like this and that he was always carrying a knife when he came to work and everyone was so annoyed of it. They had asked him to stop. Like he just was giving everyone really bad vibes. Well, he refused to not wear his knife to work and then the day after the murders, he misses work. And then he actually misses work for that whole week. And the boss calls a welfare check on him and he hadn't been to work. Now, when he came back to work, his co-workers are saying that he no longer had the knife on him, that it really like freaked all of them out. They asked him to provide the knife and he got really upset. This could just be, you know, some random co-worker drama that is going on, but it's some of the co-workers who related it to police looking for this white car, and they just said they felt very odd about this guy they worked with. Again, police have not said anything relating to this, so that's about as far as, you know, I'll dive into it, but I did find that interesting that multiple co-workers are being rubbed wrong by this man. 
This past weekend was commencement at the University of Idaho. I'm sure it was heavy with the ongoing investigation into the murder of four students. People in Moscow and honestly all of Idaho are on edge with the murders going unsolved. Kaylee Goncalves was set to graduate as well this past weekend. She was then going to be heading down to a job in Texas. The graduation ceremony held a moment of silence for Kaylee, Madison, Zana, and Ethan. Initially, the police had come out and stated that there was no threat to the public and that it was a targeted attack. But as time went by, they backtracked that a bit, saying they can't necessarily say someone was targeted, but that the crime scene seems like a targeted attack. They don't know if a person was targeted or if the house was targeted. One thing I have seen is that people thought maybe the house itself was targeted because if you notice the address, it is 1122 King Road. And this does happen the 11th month of the year 22. So 1122. So again, police are just saying they don't know if it was a specific person targeted or if the home was just targeted. I think people take the word targeted too seriously. This doesn't necessarily mean police know who committed the crime. It doesn't mean that the victims knew the killer. It just means the context is so broad, as we can see from the, them backtracking on the statement. No matter what theory I have on this case, I just keep coming back to the fact that it is unfathomable no matter which way I slice it. If the killer is someone the victims knew, then I wonder how all four of them could be the target. And if just one or two of them was the target, why kill all the other victims? And if the killer knew this home and knew the occupants of the home, why didn't they go down to that first floor and take the lives of the surviving roommates? Did they get spooked and run off? How in the world does a person who has never killed or some random college student just commit a quadruple homicide? But on the other side of things, if this was a random killer, why would an intruder walk into a home lit up with the lights on? What would the motive have been? Just to kill? But could it explain why the roommates on the first floor were spared? Did the killer not know there were others downstairs? And if this was a murder done by someone these four did not know, I have to believe this is someone that has done something like this before. Who walks into a home and takes the lives of four people on a whim? Again, no matter what theory I come up with, no matter what way I think of it, random or targeted, it just doesn't make sense. It is a huge tragedy on, and heartbreak and a loss to the community. I trust in the police investigation that they are doing their due diligence in tracking down leads. I commend the Moscow police for immediately bringing on the Idaho State Police and the FBI. This isn't CSI. Like I said earlier, evidence isn't tested within one day. Investigations take time. So have some patience and hopefully we see an end in sight soon because I definitely can't bear the thought of this case going unsolved. I will be following this case and providing update episodes. Again, this is a case that hits super close to home for me. I've definitely thought of it every single night since it happened, and I have been devastated for the four bright lights in this world that had so much life ahead of them. So stay diligent, stay aware, stay safe, and send in any tips and information you may have. For accurate information, you can follow the Moscow Police Department on Facebook. So there was an update after we did this recording for the episode and before it was released. I've added some, you know, little snippets of extra information throughout the episode where I could. Um, but I'm going to kind of go through Brian Enton's um, 
reporting on it, like his Twitter thread on it. I know that sounds weird, but he is a great reporter and he has been there following the case and he kind of just made some key points in the update that came out this week. So the Moscow police, Captain Roger Landler is the one who did this updated video and this is what Brian Enton kind of got from this video. He says that the first call the local police make when they come across the murders is to the Idaho State Police. So I do commend them for that, for just immediately knowing that they were going to need help on this investigation, swallowing their pride, not letting that get in the way and like asking for the help they need. I I really do appreciate that. He also said that the scene was not chaos, but that it was very somber. So there were a lot of college students outside. They said there was a lot of crying going on and friends that were trying to figure out who was inside. Some family members end up coming onto the scene. It's, again, not chaotic, but very, very sad. And police also said that for some of their young officers, this is the first crime scene they had even encountered and that it was extremely difficult on them. The police say that the first three days was an adjustment because they were trying to get resources and just put a system in place that worked for everyone. The FBI did get involved pretty much right off the bat and they really helped put this system into place to process all the information that starts literally barreling in. The police team says that they've done really well at working together and there's a lot of emotions, a lot of highs, a lot of lows. I can only imagine. The police do make note that the general public doesn't have an idea of the scope of the investigation and the number of people involved, which again, I said earlier that people have been very critical of this investigation, but things take time, you guys. This is a huge investigation. There is tons of information coming in and it takes time. They said that the FBI command post is in the Moscow police parking lot. Everything they would do in Salt Lake City, they're doing literally in a parking lot. Like they are working hard on this case. I know it's been a month. I know people want this killer caught. Obviously, like I do too. The families do too. Guess what? The police do too. And they are, I think, doing the best they can. Their most frustrating part of the investigation is all the rumors and speculation on social media because they are truly trying to protect the integrity of this investigation, like we mentioned many times through this. They said that like this little information that gets put out online will end up in a tip and then they're really like tracking down a lot of rumors instead of facts. The police are like trying to track down all these tips, but some are just pure speculation and not a lot of fact. And they said that the really sad part about this is the impact it has on the victim's families and the victim's friends and just other people in the town because all these people are receiving death threats. And the police say it is re-victimizing people who suffered from this horrific thing that has happened. And I do agree with that. Like you cannot just think that someone did it or you know put it out there that you think the family has something to do with it or you think the roommates have something to do with it like that's just they have when they have publicly cleared people again they have much more information than we have we can only speculate they are truly trying to track down the real facts they are going to 
continue down the road they're on. They're going to eliminate information that is not relevant and hope to take on new information. Again, if you want factual information, please follow the Moscow Police Department on Facebook. Brian Enton is a good reporter to follow, and I will be posting case updates because, again, this case just hits so close to home for me. I have thought of these four every single day. Ethan, Maddie, Zana, Kaylee, you guys are in my mind. I have been heartbroken for you and your families, and I truly hope more than anything that the truth in this case can be tracked down, and I do believe in the investigation, and I believe that they can make that happen.